Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. I'm Dana Zip. And Josh Bichon. Today we're joined by Greg Highfill, Woods County educator and former area livestock specialist in the Northwest Area Office. Greg, growing up, the way to make money as a wheat farmer, in my opinion, was to run stalker calves and plant jagger wheat. And you know, I, I was born in 1990, so you have to forgive me as a young pup. That's that's all I really remember. But I guess in some conversations I've overheard you having with Dana, that wasn't always the case. Maybe maybe grazing wheat is something newer than I expected it to be. Do you, would you like to go into that history and maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, way back. Great. Way, way, back. way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, OK, when I was growing up in high school and, and junior high back in the 70s, uh, it was uh, a time when wheat pasture use was really coming into its own. It was very much expanding. Producers uh, were using it, as you said, as a dual purpose crop for, for wheat and grain. You know, at that time, the 400 weight calves in October and the seven, eight weight calves in March could almost guarantee you a, a profit on wheat pasture. Now, there's no guarantees, but, but, but just a very consistent and uh, relatively low risk price time when uh, producers made a lot of money. And so, you know, when I came into the area job in 85, there was lots of wheat pasture usage and people uh, bringing in more long haul cattle. And that's why uh, the Stalker Conference was uh, uh, so popular because we talked about cattle health and, and, and uh, long haul cattle and different aspects of straightening out cattle. And uh, that just was the key topic at the time because wheat pasture and the amount of wheat pasture that we had uh, very much in place. We, we grazed quite a bit of wheat, uh, certainly compared to today, and uh, was kind of at its peak time. So, uh, you know, I look at that time as an important time in establishing wheat pasture as a, as a grazing crop. Now, why, again, why do you think, Greg, why do you think it's producers, there was more wheat pasture grace then? Because that's my view right now. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I mean, why... <sighs> And Trent, maybe jump in too from an economic standpoint. Is is that is there just more risk now, or diversified revenue streams have always been important in Oklahoma since we've been typically producing wheat on wheat on wheat on wheat. Getting some other way to utilize that crop was very important. And you know, for the, some people in other parts of the country that are list, maybe listening to this may not understand what wheat pasture even is. So our production system in Oklahoma, if you're looking at wheat pasture, tends to be what, Josh, plant September 1, September 10th, somewhere in there, yeah. planting our wheat, letting it get some forage on it. And then, Greg, maybe November time period, it's right. got enough growth on it to, to put some four or five weight. Now, getting more into the six weight <laughs> size animals as our weaning weights come up and kind of the availability, availability of cattle locally goes that direction, but putting those cattle out there and grazing them and then pulling those off at first hollow stem or roughly around the last week of February and then going ahead and producing grain with that crop. So we call that grazing grain. 
And that's just a really great way or has been a great way for producers in this area to diversify the revenue stream without really necessarily affecting yield that much. And Josh can talk some about that. And, and a lot of those yield reductions have to do with uh, with planning earlier in our planning dates when it comes to producing grain. But does that kind of answer your yeah, question? Yeah, as far, as far as the risk goes, too, I think Greg and I talked about this earlier is maybe the risk. It's just riskier to buy as many calves. It's not as consistent as far as pricing. Um, you know, you're, it's not consistently going to make you a lot of money, right, for the spring. And, and you said, Greg, way, pa- way back, it was more consistent. It was more consistent and, um, and certainly less total dollars. And so it, it is big money today. And not that it ha- hasn't been back then, too, but, but uh, certainly today, just, just really big money. Something that was fairly prominent when I, again, 85 to 90, 95, uh, when, when I was starting here at the area job, uh, there was quite a bit more contract grazing. Uh, companies that would contract with producers to uh, graze their wheat, and the producers didn't have to be cattlemen. Okay. And so just uh, uh, really quite a bit of that went on, and it created industries. Again, I. Uh, you know, we had a commercial receiving lot conference uh, back in those days because, you know, there were people that got in cattle, they grazed them for a company on someone else's leased ground, and then and then shipped those cattle, you know, to a feed yard, usually on some kind of contract basis. So, you know, we were doing a lot of work back then that included, you know, less risk management because they didn't have to own the cattle. They were paid on a cost of gain basis. And so they just saw that as a revenue stream trend mm-hmm. that that was fairly consistent and low risk and and that was and and uh again that kind of peaked in the 90s and you really don't see that that much anymore and uh, at all yeah that's a really good point i mean and i've gotten to that some too as you were talking about less total dollars back then but as i hear myself say that i i want to argue in my own mind because i say well it was less total dollars but money has never been as cheap as it is right now <clears throat> The interest rate is very low. And if you think about borrowing money back in the 80s yeah. <laughs> to purchase capital. Oh, true. <laughs> Let's not forget about that. Yeah. Wonderful I decade. I don't know if the less total dollars argument is that great of one. So maybe we yeah. got to dig deeper as to why why uh, we see less wheat pasture maybe now on. And, you know, I've I've made some comments that maybe other crops are competing with acres. We have diff- we have double crops, soybeans, maybe sorghum. And that pushes our planting date back a little bit. And we can't produce forage. As easily if we're running double crops on those acres, but there's a lot of different things that go into that. Yeah, Greg, looking back on some of the early projects OSU done, I know you had your fair share of the Marshall Research Station unit there west of Stillwater, half an hour. What were some of the early projects you were looking at there? Well, when Dr. Horn started the unit in uh, 1991, uh, the first three years were really focused on uh, supplementation and supplementation rates. And so uh, Dr. Horn did a number of of classic studies where we increased stocking rate by 30% uh, by adding, uh, you know, three quarters of a percent of body weight of supplement uh, to to those cattle. So uh, really showed uh, very definitively with replicated plots that if we just fed those cattle, we really got about the same gain if we had adequate forage that we would get uh, on on regular wheat, but if we increased stocking rate and provided the supplement, we could get 
more total pounds of gain per acre, not necessarily per head, but per acre because of the dual impact of increased stocking rate and increased supplementation. And so uh, OSU has provided educational programming on, on the results of those trials for years and, and again, was an important studies that, that we've done and, and hopefully made producers money. Uh, that kind of expanded into three years after that of doing uh, mineral work and uh, finding uh, optimum mineral uh, packages that, that allowed wheat pasture cattle to do their best. And of course, intermingled with that was the use of ionophores and how they could be supplemented with the supplement and with the mineral uh, to increase uh, gain. So uh, really worked on efficiency of the wheat pasture program and uh, that was very important and 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 really quality work. So uh, you might be able to comment more on Dr. Carver's work at uh, Marshall uh, and and the improvements we've made in forage production. I agree. As the program shifted, definitely there's a big need to have some local genetics that were developed, and we trademarked eventually that the grazing grain system for our dual purpose wheat varieties, something that can not only produce the forage, but also rebound from that grazing pressure and still make a grain crop. And so I always find it interesting looking at some of the stuff you did at Marshall, looking at the, the animal science components of everything. But as an agronomist, there's a lot of management practices that a farmer has to do anything from planting date, planting rate, variety selection, fertility, uh, so on and so forth, that has a big impact on what forage potential you have on that pasture. And that's another thing that you start looking at agronomically. A lot of our producers uh, that they're used to someone coming up and offering them lease for that cost of gain uh, lease and stuff like that. But they're growing for pasture, but a lot of times they end up just grain only or they don't know what they're going to do at planting. So they start treating it like a dual purpose. They might plant early, uh, pull out of upfront fertilizer, uh, stuff like that, or choose a variety that's excellent for that dual purpose system, but maybe not the top end for grain. And we even got guys that haven't done much grazing as of late and still have that mindset. And I know I've talked to other educators at our field days last couple of years, and we start hammering them. Well, if you're truly going to be grain only, we need to start looking at this differently. I know Dr. Edwards, when he did some trials looking at some of that stuff from Marshall, we saw that big difference in grain yield drop when we grazed. Uh, but two thirds of that drop in grain yield potential was that planting date. Uh, and we also say that. Dual purpose, we're planting early, early September for and grain. Uh, we're pushing that back into mid-October. And just that month different in planting was a big difference on our grain yield potential just because we don't need to waste all that biomass using that moisture in the fall. We don't need that many tillers. Uh, so it wasn't just the grazing pressure, but also those agronomics, the planting date, uh, planting rate. If we're just for grain only, that's going to be a lot different than we're up and up for getting more biomass in the fall for a dual purpose uh kind of goes on and on but i've always found it interesting balancing that agronomics and those livestock components animal science components oh i always have to think back to roger gribble and i fighting over uh you know how much uh grazing decreased grain i i would always point to the years where when you grazed it the the, the grain yield all increased <laughs> and uh, he would always have to of course point to the years where it decreased it you know uh 
30, you know, 20, 20, 25 percent, something like that. So, yeah. you know, uh, uh, that I average is high as 60 percent. You know, I, I, I'm sure I can discredit that somehow. But uh, yeah. no, you know, you know, that, you know, that eight to 10 percent that it probably is. Uh, we, we never landed on that. Uh, it always was one end or the other. But uh, it, it is important. Developed our system of looking at for first hollow stand that came about because we we're grazing too late. That was hitting us on yield, on grain. Absolutely. And and certainly, you know, variety is so important to that. And and uh, gosh, we've got producers educated and so much more aware uh, of, of what their potential is and, and how to get off it at the right time. That's so not just pulling off on March 10th. Exactly. Yeah. No, the date, date, we were way past date on, on pull dates. So, <laughs> man, it just, it seemed like when I first got here, I was like, oh, yeah, they'll pull off wheat pasture in March. It seems like we think about it early February. I mean, right now, it well, seems a lot of, quite a bit different. Collecting that data for several years, and there's a lot of times early February, we're at that stage. Some varieties are, absolutely. So you so, would fail if you were great so insurance purposes, they have to set a date. They can't really make it field by field specific on a, yeah. a whole policy. So I'm not going to be off topic here, but is some of that earlier hollow stem have to do with varieties that push forage production and grow fast right out of the gate or is, is that a completely different topic that is well, causing that a lot of its maturity uh, some of it you know we've made a big shift back in the day going from tall to semi-dwarfed mm-hmm. and we've seen that even on planting in the hot soils with the hypocotyl being shortened uh, but some of that is breeding for more forage we get that elongation but a lot of its maturity and planting date you see those early maternal varieties we are starting to see some genetics that are more photo period sensitive. Uh, so day length is going to be a mer- another factor into that. Uh, it's not just soil temperature anymore. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. That's what makes it a field by field basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole wheat pasture conversation has been interesting uh, as an economist because I love the idea of diversifying revenues, uh, but then it also can make people poor managers for grain as well because over mm-hmm. the years it got really easy to put all of our nitrogen out in anhydrous in August. and then. As years have gone on, and Dr. Brian Arnell has really worked hard on the nutrient side of that, and we've kind of determined that maybe we only need 30 pounds of N up front <laughs> to get the forage we need, and then we can kind of be a little bit better managers and reduce our total nitrogen applications uh, by split applying in and things like that. So it's been a long process trying to learn exactly how to do this correctly. So uh-huh. it's it's interesting, though, Greg, now that you were in the area office and then you went to the county. So do you feel that? All those things that we kind of developed at OSU that were very wheat pasture focused, you do you feel like producers have really applied a lot of that stuff? Have they taken that and really used all, you know, quite a bit of that information? It sounds like from our conversation we have, but it's it's probably a unique thing that you've been able to look at is to see how the application goes back to the county and down to the ground level, really, of what extension really wants to happen. Absolutely. Uh, it's a great success story. And, and, and yes, you see it uh, practiced every day. Um, producers are very adept and they know how to, to use information uh, to, to match their needs. And, and, and you do, you see it every day. I'm, I'm fortunate in Woods County. I've got a lot of younger producers that are my stalker operators. And uh, it's interesting. They kind of apply that technology a little bit differently because it's kind of a standard now. And, uh, and so they, they see it as, the standard of how things should be done to begin with. And, and uh, it does uh, help them in their production practices. You know, the stalker deal is always fighting health and, uh, and it's just a battle that we have to 
fight and, and keep fighting. My producers are always looking for information and, and educational programming on, you know, new health ideas, uh, ways that we can keep cattle healthier, get them healthier from wherever they've come from. And so it, it's just a challenge. Uh, but, uh, but from a wheat production standpoint and a, you know, cattle supplementation standpoint, yes, a lot of what we've researched is certainly applied. Yeah, I, I don't know if we've solved the health thing. I think uh, <laughs> from what we've seen, I mean, what from what I've noticed in, in our industry, that's still a big question mark. And that's probably a really good area of, of focus, I think, going forward. We've, we've kind of solved a lot of these other things, but that's still a big, a big problem, I think. Well, again, it, it, it's probably the limiting factor. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably why we don't see uh, as many wheat pasture cattle in, in the country as we do. Um, just all producers tend to be more specialized. Our crop producers tend to be more specialized. They've become no-till producers, and that reduces forage production. Mm-hmm. They've doing double crop. That takes, uh, you know, acreage away from, from forage, uh, from wheat forage. So, you know, on the flip side of that, our wheat guys and, and the cattle guys uh, are, you know, more intent on probably getting in more cattle and, and doing more with less. You know, you may see fewer cattle in the country, uh, but that doesn't mean that the stalker industry isn't alive and well. So. Yeah, it just looks a little different, I think. Yeah, good yeah, point. I think it looks a little different. And you can't really buy cattle without hedging them anymore. <laughs> and a lot of people do it, but it's you were speaking a little bit earlier to the economics of stalker cattle and how you know, it used to be you could buy cattle in November and the price would only go up from there till March. And that is not what we experience anymore. And it seems like the last three, four years or so, we've actually seen prices plummet in that February to March time frame, right where those cattle would be marketed for various reasons. And it has a lot to do with, you know, these world markets now that, that there's nothing that's just USA focused anymore. It can be it can be something going on in all parts of the world that cause these markets to fluctuate. And we always have to drive home. At least every time I do a meeting in your county, I, I seem to talk about hedging and, and price risk management. And there's various ways you can do that. But it's something that people cannot forget. Absolutely. Um, again, uh been around this 30 years, but I don't know that I've seen any more of a sensitive time than right now. Um, We've got fewer producers handling bigger numbers of cattle that, um, you know, if you you visit with the bankers and the credit people around the district, uh, I hear more issues of people in trouble than, you know, I've heard in years. And so I think that absolutely has to go with the hedging and the risk management and you know, again, that takes the risk out of it, but it also takes a little of the profit mm-hmm. potential out of it. And through all that, uh, we, we have to be diligent and uh, take little steps. Absolutely. Hedging is key. And, and I don't know of a, you know, a really hard, serious producer in my county that, that wouldn't uh, be fully hedged. Yeah. Now, it kind of becomes the analogy of whether you're hitting for base hits or you're hitting for home runs. And, and I think our Producers have to be a little bit more uh, cautious right now and maybe lay a bunt down every once in a while. <laughs> just just try to get on base as opposed to trying to really hit that home run. I think uh, another unique aspect of wheat pasture in Southern Plains is we got that crop out there with eight, nine months. That's a long time to have make decisions that far out. So we have a lot of decision making that goes throughout that time period. So a lot of times we're making those decisions come spring. 
Do we want to graze out? Do we want to pull off early, go for a good grain crop? What are the conditions looking like? What's the forecast on drought or rainy spring? So we make those decisions late. So we kind of allow those opportunities to be more fluid, I would think. Which can be good and bad, you know, both ways. So that's a really good, I mean, where else do you find a crop that's in nine months out of the year? That's totally different. And it can become so many different things as well. We didn't even talk about hay. You know, you can you can graze it till then and then also get a hay crop off of it or grain. You know, there's so many different ways to go there. Absolutely. You know, I've got cattle guys that don't graze, that don't uh, that don't harvest a thing. They roll straight from graze out into crabgrass and then right back into wheat. So it's uh, they, they'll get 11 months of grazing sometimes. Yeah. And it's amazing how diverse agriculture in Oklahoma is. and. As we bring in more educators, I'm sure we'll get even more uh, types of crops and production systems across the state that we'll talk about. But, Greg, we've really enjoyed having you on today and appreciate your time and talking about this topic. Some, the history of wheat pasture is something that I don't hear very often. So I think that's a really great topic to have. But we really enjoy the fact that you joined us today and we hope to see you again soon. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.